This episode of To The Point is sponsored by Tarsus. Tarsus Pharmaceuticals applies proven science and new technology to revolutionize treatment for patients, starting with eye care. Tarsus is advancing its pipeline to address several diseases with high unmet need across a range of therapeutic categories, including eye care, dermatology, and infectious disease prevention. Tarsus is proud to announce that Xdemvi Lotolaner Ophthalmic Solution 0.25% is now available to prescribe. Welcome to the Pupil Pod, where we use clinical cases to guide discussions on board review topics. I'm your host, Scylla Ball, and my guest today is Dr. Nicole Fram. Dr. Fram is a cataract, refractive, and cornea surgeon in Los Angeles, California. Dr. Fram, thank you again for joining me tonight. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here to talk about how we can manage these challenging cases. Yes, we are We are very excited to see how you work through this. We've all had one of these patients and we'll all continue to have some of these patients. So let's get right into the case. This is a 68-year-old woman who presents two months after uneventful refractive cataract surgery with placement of a multifocal intraocular lens in the right eye. The surgery was uneventful and her uncorrected visual acuity is 20-20 in the operative eye. However, she is unhappy with the quality of her vision, which she describes as not crisp, and notices occasional shadows and distortions in her vision. Now, Dr. Fram, obviously this isn't something that any surgeon wants their patient to experience after cataract surgery. We all kind of want our patients to be happy and to love their new lenses. However, it's unavoidable, right? If we're operating, this is something that's going to happen to our patients at some point or another. Could you kind of start out by walking us through your preoperative screening process for refractive cataract surgery patients specifically and kind of how you think through that process? Sure. You know, I I think about refractive cataract surgery the same way I think about any cataract surgery. We're always trying to hit our targets. Um, And what you really want to do is look at first the ocular surface. This is the key to anything. Second thing I look at is what are they wearing in their glasses and how are they currently functioning? Because the last thing you want to do is take something away from them that they already have. Um, And you can ask, what were you like in your 50s and 60s? And what do you like now in your 70s or 80s? So that you get a better idea of, do they really know what it means to put on reading glasses? Um, Do they really know what monovision means, even if they're, quote, naturally doing it moving forward? So these things about looking at who they were and who they are now and what they're wearing in the glasses are critical. Um, And then the last thing you want to do is make sure I always get a macular OCT on all my patients and an RNFL. And it seems like you're doing, you know, too much testing, but I won't know what a patient is eligible for unless I take a closer look at their macula. We have such great technology to pick up epiretinal membranes, uh, intraretinal cysts, issues, that could really cause issues with any presbyopia correcting IOL or diffractive technology. 
It's interesting to hear that you get the OCT of the RNFL as well. I know that we tend to get the OCT macula, but that's good to know that that's something that we add for our workup for these patients. Well, I'll tell you why. A lot of our patients are high myopes. We know that high myopes get cataracts a little bit earlier in age, and it only takes one high myope that you miss uh, in, in a nasal step or glaucoma in that changes your whole career. Um, so for me, any high myope always gets visual field testing and an RNFL. The RNFLs are difficult to read, um, obviously, because the, the nerves are tilted and they're not necessarily nomograms for those eyes. So I really do an in-depth uh, workup on them beforehand because just like everyone always says, if you diagnose it beforehand, it's their problem. If you diagnose it after, it's your problem. Absolutely. That is such an important clinical pearl. Speaking of which, can you tell us a little bit about your consent process? What are some of the things that you discuss with your patients before surgery? So as I evaluate the patient, you know, the first thing I ask them is, do you mind wearing reading glasses? How do you live your life? I always want to ask, do you look at your phone without glasses on? Do you sit there and put your phone really close to your face before you go to bed at night and read? You know, I want to know all these intricacies because as I'm consenting them, I'm basically going through the entire process of this is what your vision would be like with just distance. This is what it would be like with a mini monovision strategy. And this is what it would be like with a trifocal. And I'm actually in there with an iPad and I'm drawing how the light rays go in and out of the eye. And then I have the Rendia simulation that I can just click on and show them kind of what it means to have all focal points, what it means for nighttime driving, and they actually see the, the visual. And you can actually see them have like a visceral response. Like if you show someone halos and glare and they are just absolutely averse to that, they're going to just shun away that simulation. And whether or not it's fully accurate of what the lens will do, it helps you in your process while you're consenting. So a patient can never walk away from my process saying that I never talk to them about it because I'm sitting there with the iPad and doing the simulations. It's created much less callbacks for our office. When you delegate that process, they inevitably come back and say, no one, the doctor never told me I would have glare and halos. Um, and when you're consenting about a trifocal in particular, I love trifocals. I put them in. They're great in the right patient. And I tell them one to 3% of patients are not going to be happy no matter what. And if you fall into that category, I'm going to help you. Now, what I mean by not happy, it could be waxy vision or just no crisp clarity like our patient here that we're talking about, or it could be the rings around lights or halos that they're seeing are just intolerable. And so rather than allowing a patient to suffer, we're going to help them through the process and say one to 3% don't like it. It's not your fault. It, your eye, your brain is not getting along with the technology and we're going to help you. So important and so amazing that we have those tech, the technology to kind of show patients, this is what you could potentially experience. Is this something that you're willing to tolerate? And I think um, an important point that you made is that you discuss this directly with your patients. You do not delegate it out to others. And that allows patients to feel like they spoke to their doctor. Their doctor told them exactly what was possible. And I think that that is something that as young surgeons, we need to really take to heart. Yeah. I mean, I think if you, especially as a young surgeon, I'm not a young surgeon anymore, but I think that 
it's really important though, because if you know you did the right thing and you know you stood by it and you can have your counselors in the room and you can develop a relationship with your counselors that they can be an extension of you in the future. I'm not against that. This is what I found helpful for my practice. I'm in Los Angeles, Beverly Hills area. I have a very high maintenance patient population and I'm not necessarily proud of it, but I feel like they need me to do it. Um, It slows me down. And if you're a super high volume practice, it's not going to work, you know, but then if you need to create an extension of yourself in some fashion uh, with your surgical counselors. Can you walk us through kind of your lens selection process? Obviously, this differs by patient need. So let's say that you have a patient that really wants spectacle independence. Do you prefer to do trifocals, bilateral trifocals? When do you opt for blended vision? Can you just share with the audience kind of how you work through those problems? Yeah. So I think it's really important to figure out how they were working with their visual system prior to meeting them. Right. So we talked about that. After that, I say to them, are you willing to wear reading glasses? And if they say, I really want to get out of glasses, I really want spectacle independence. I tell them there's only two ways to get there. One way is a trifocal and let's see if you're a candidate. And then the other way is Um, to do mini monovision or do some sort of sacrifice with an extended depth of focus um, and try and do a micro monovision with one of those strategies. But I always tell them, even with trifocal, I say there will be some circumstances where you need glasses, sometimes at night when you drive, sometimes when you're reading, you know, something very close. Um, With mini monovision, I say you're going to get out of glasses for 80% of what you do, but 20% you'll wear glasses. The brain likes it at night when both eyes are doing the same thing. Uh, So, and when you read very small print, you might need glasses. So I always tell them up front that nothing's better than mother nature, right? So mother nature is awesome. And then she takes it away and we are trying (laughs) to mimic mother nature. Um, And, and it's, it's hard to do. The other thing is counseling. You know, a lot of patients will come to you and say, well, I have glare and I don't want to wear reading glasses anymore. Well, if you put in a trifocal, that's fine, but you have to explain to them that I'm going to give you a different kind of more organized glare at night, right? And so there was uh, there were presentations, wonderful presentations at ACOS, I believe, last year. And the one thing that was the determinant of happiness after a trifocal was not all these things, angle kappa, ocular surface, you know, all these things, high order aberrations. It was how motivated they were to get out of glasses, right? So obviously you need you know, the retina to be perfect and the ocular surface to be manageable and all those things. But how motivated are you to get out of glasses and how much will you put up with, you know, issues at night with nighttime driving? So that's how I, I take them through that. So it's really trifocal or monovision, mini monovision. Light adjustable lens has been a great strategy for my post-LASIK, uh, particularly myopic patient population. Uh, those patients, we can do blended vision, we can do micro mono, mini mono, and we really don't have to do, it's like customized monovision. We don't have to do as much separation between the two eyes to give them what they want. So those patients are doing really well with light adjustable lens. Okay. So going back to our patient, we talked a lot about the ocular surface already. What are some of the most common reasons for an unhappy refractive cataract patient? And then how do you assess them postoperatively if they report symptoms like this patient did? 
initially, if the patients only had one eye done um, and we chose a trifocal technology, we want to do a careful look at the ocular surface. So I'll do a topography really to see the tear breakup time. We now have ray tracing technology and the eye trace has the eye prime where we can actually document the tear film and the breakup time and have an objective measure. So I'm doing that. You don't have to have an eye trace to do that, but I actually document that. If they're still on drops and you see, you know, PEK and, and or some people call it SPK, if you see issues on the cornea, tear breakup time is having issues, you may want to change the drops around, do preservative free drops or get them on a, a lower drop regimen to get the ocular surface back on track. Make sure we didn't miss any epithelial basement memory just to free or anything else that we can mitigate their symptoms with. Once we get them off of drops, if they're still unhappy, then we need, it's difficult at that time because, you know, at six weeks, you can kind of start to see this like capsular fibrosis. So now you're confused, right? And you're like, well, the ocular surface doesn't look so bad, but now we have this capsule fibrosis. Well, should I yag the capsule or should I wait? One of the easiest things to do is to ask the patient, were you happy initially after surgery? immediately, like the first three weeks after surgery. And if the answer is yes, then you can start saying, well, maybe it's a dry eye and maybe it's the capsule. The other thing you have to say is, are you annoyed by the symptoms or are you debilitated if they're talking about their glare and halo? Because everyone's going to see rings around lights. That's part of the lens. So I kind of go, I break it up into like early postoperative issues, which can be dry eye, that are caused by the drops that I'm giving. Once they're off drops, then I'm looking at the capsule and I'm trying to decide, do I need to laser the capsule? I don't wanna laser the capsule until I figure out if they were initially happy after surgery. If they were not, and they just keep getting this waxy vision, then I'll do a contact lens over refraction. So I'll take a hard contact, either scleral lens or even a soft contact, if there's a little bit of refractive error, to help me distinguish what's coming from the lens and what's coming from the cornea. The eye trace is also very helpful, this ray tracing technology to help me figure that out. And I'll look at the MTFs on the eye trace and see if they're really having problems with contrast. After I'm decided, is this a refractive error? We put the contact on and they're totally happy, so it's not the lens. Then I'm in now in the category of laser vision correction or thinking about going down that road. Before I do any laser vision correction, I'm going to open up the capsule, right? Because I don't want to do the laser vision correction and then their capsule gets cloudy and then it's a different refraction. Sure. Right? Uh, let's say we put the contact lens on and it's no different. You've corrected the corneal aberrations and they're still having problems. Now you're dealing on a different decision tree of it being the lens. So now if it's the lens, in order to be a successful refractive cataract surgeon, you have to be able to clean up your mess. So if the patient has an ocular surface issue, deal with the ocular surface issue. If you have a refractive error, usually it's like minus 75 of, of you know, astigmatism. It always is, right? You can do a simple LRI in the office or consider doing, you know, laser refractive surgery. Um, but you have... And then if it's you put the contact lens on and nothing's making it better, you have to accept the fact that they may not be getting along with the technology and we need to exchange for a monofocal. This episode of To The Point is sponsored by Tarsus. 
Tarsus Pharmaceuticals applies proven science and new technology to revolutionize treatment for patients, starting with eye care. Tarsus is advancing its pipeline to address several diseases with high unmet need across a range of therapeutic categories, including eye care, dermatology, and infectious disease prevention. Tarsus is proud to announce that Xdemvi Lotolaner Ophthalmic Solution 0.25% is now available to prescribe. So let's say that the issue was not related to their refractive error, but instead was the dysphotopsias. What do you do to manage positive versus negative dysphotopsias? Is there anything that you can do? How long do you tell patients to wait? Yeah, so there's also multifocal or diffractive dysphotopsia. So if they are complaining of just glare and halo with oncoming, so you take you know, you take your light and you shine it in their face and they say, yes, that's what's making me crazy. That is diffractive dysphotopsia. Exchanging that for a monofocal is going to work. And sometimes I'm exchanging it for light adjustable lens because then I can help work with a mini monovision strategy for them. Then, then there's positive dysphotopsia. Positive dysphotopsia can happen it's more common with higher index of refraction lenses and square edges. We have square edges on all of our lenses because that prevents PCO. But there are certain lenses that have a lower index of refraction or they're rounded anteriorly. They still have a square posterior edge that can help mitigate some of the positive dysphotopsia. So my strategy, if I have an unhappy patient with oblique light that is causing arcs of light and streaks and flickering, then that's positive dysphotopsia. They can have both. They can have all three. They can have diffractive, they can have positive, and they can have negative, which is a dark arc off to the side caused by light rays hitting the IOL and being bent and hitting the nasal retina and some of the light rays hitting the IOL but missing um, the area that refracts it, and then it creates a shadow on the, in the nasal retina. And so that's that illumination gap. So when you have negative dysphotopsia, then you want to move the optic forward, right? If you move the optic forward, then the light rays are going to miss the nasal retina and not cause the illumination gap, right? So I often will also change the material of the IOL to a lower index of refraction. And so that's the LI61AO Bausch & Lomb lens. It's 1.43 versus 1.55. And it also makes the illumination gap smaller in addition to moving it forward. So whether you do reverse optic capture and keep the haptics in the bag and bring the optic on top if the capsule axis is five millimeters, or you just take the whole thing and put it in the sulcus, and I often suture it to the iris just so it won't move over time. That is your dysphotopsia, negative dysphotopsia killer strategy. Positive dysphotopsia in our research, changing the lens to a lower index of refraction was all we could do, and that improved symptoms. It doesn't cure symptoms. Improved symptoms 87 to 88% of the time. But the biggest mistake I see is that Someone will exchange the multifocal IOL for a monofocal of the same material and the same index of refraction, and they didn't pick up that they actually had positive dysphotopsia also, and they still have the glare and halo. 
So then they, now they need a third exchange, right? And it's still not 100%, but it's going to improve them. So we have a number of cases like that. So speaking of exchanges, can you give us some surgical pearls for when you do an exchange, assuming this is the first exchange and not the third exchange? Now you're going to taste of my practice, but yeah. I asked for it. I asked for all this, so don't feel bad for me. So when we're performing IOL exchange, the biggest thing you need to realize is that you need to know how to calculate the lens, which I feel like a lot of people don't talk about. So we're going to talk about it. And you also need to figure out how to get the haptics out if they're fibrosed at the equator, because we don't want to cause zonulopathy. So, and you have to have your plan A and your plan B. Um, and if you're not comfortable having a plan A and plan B, then you shouldn't be exchanging the IOL. So let's start with a common thing that we see. When we're, you can calculate the IOL based on looking at what was in the eye and looking at the refraction and comparing the A constants. So we do that a lot. Um, we always can run, I run the IOL Master Holiday and it works really well. Um, you can also, and that's in the pseudophagic state. And then you can also use the Barrett RX, which is an IOL exchange formula. So you need the preoperative biometry and the postoperative biometry to put in that. So those are the kind of the three things that I'm looking at when I'm trying to calculate. If I'm staying, you know, bag to bag, uh, and that's my plan A, then I'm, I'm calculating that way. But if I'm in the sulcus and I'm going to move the optic forward, whether they had negative dysphotopsy or anything like that, then I'm going to back off depending on the power of the lens. Right. So if it's above 22 diopters, I may really back off about half a diopter or three quarters of a diopter. So I look at that kind of Warren Hill has this great sulcus um, uh, diagram uh, or nomogram of, of how you can adjust. So I suggest you have that plastered on your wall in the OR. So that's the first thing. Get the calculation right if you can. Um, counsel the patient that exchanges aren't as exacting. You may need laser vision correction. Say it all from the start. The next thing is you go into the surgery and I say, if, if the capsule's closed, I say my plan A is going to be um, that I'm doing a bag-to-bag -bag exchange and I want to get everything out of the bag and I'm going to put either a three-piece or a new single-piece acrylic in the bag. Um, when the, the haptics are fibrosed, the first thing you want to do is get under the anterior capsule. I use, I some people use a needle. I use the Donenfeld spatula and viscoelastic cannula. Um, we're developing a new instrument called the Framskadon, and it has the Donenfeld spatula on the other side, and it's a basket spatula on one side that I modified. Yes, say it again, Framskadon. Um, I love it. Amazing. And then we, I developed this thing called Framula. Yeah, it's going to be a cannula that kind of you can get under. It's sharp enough. And then it puts viscoelastic posteriorly and not anteriorly. Wait for it. It's coming. Um, but you can do it with a needle. You can take a 25-gauge needle or, a, or even a 27-gauge needle on viscoelastic and just get under there and then insert, then come out and then use a spatula. You have to go down the optic haptic junction as Alan Crandall taught us. Um, and that kind of frees up those adhesions. If it's an Acrosoft lens, then it's going to have that terminal bulb that's fibrosed in there. And if it's, or not Acrosoft, Clarion now, so it's an Alcom platform lens. 
or if it's um, the technus platform at the optic haptic junction, that's where that little ridge is or that little um, nook is where it really gets fibrosis, and that's what you want to concentrate on freeing up. But if all your efforts are really, you know, causing a lot of zonulopathy, then you can actually just amputate the haptics and you just have to make sure that the sharp edge is not in contact. It has to be inside the capsulotomy or inside the capsulorexis. So it's not going to be in contact with the iris because it can rub on the iris. And you can either leave them in the equator or you can get everything out. Sometimes it's easier to amputate the haptics, get the optic out, and then go for the haptics because you have more maneuvering room. So that's been super helpful. Uh, sometimes we need to use capsule retractors to give us some counter traction while we're trying to use a bimanual approach for getting them out. So these are all techniques that with experience you can do safely and then knowing when to stop. So either you can put it in the bag or you can say and put it at a different axis where your haptics, your old haptics aren't located, or you can put it in the sulcus and do an optic capture position. Um, if it's an open capsule, now you have a different story. You really do need to be ready for your plan A and plan B. So your plan A is going to be to get it out of the bag and put a lens in the sulcus and do optic capture. You're not going to get a single piece of acrylic back in the bag in that circumstance. Or you can just put the whole thing in the sulcus. But if you start to get into the situation, and I was just in this situation the other day where I was in a I thought I was going to rip every zonule as I was trying to dissect this thing out. And I had to really ask myself, is this patient prepared for an intrascleral haptic fixation procedure? And the answer was no. And I was able to carefully dissect it out. But if I was a beginning young surgeon, I would have stopped. I would have absolutely stopped and said, I'm sorry, I cannot take this out because I'm not sure that you're prepared for what is about to happen. And I think that's a really important ego check and it's a really important lesson to, to say to the patient ahead of time and to say to yourself during surgery. Because this like feeling that I have to do it because I told him I was doing an exchange, so I have to do an exchange, is not valid. It's not accurate. Because our first rule is to do no harm. And if you don't have the experience to take it to that level, you should just stop. That's such a good pearl. And I think as a young surgeon, something that I've been thinking of more and more recently, because when you're in training, you're always under the protection of somebody somewhere. But when you start your own practice or when you're practicing out on your own for the first time, you're like, is this appropriate for me? And that's that's something that even when you're operating, you need to say to yourself, is this still appropriate for me? Right. And sometimes the, the most heroic moments are when you stop the surgery. Absolutely. You know, and come back another day or come back with an expert that can mentor you. There's no shame in that. And the patients appreciate it. Um, I, I've had to do it at this. I'm 15 years in and I, I still have had to do it. And, and, and people don't talk about it. Um, so it's not to say that IL exchange is easy. You should do it. If you can put it in, take it out. You can try. You can go to skills transfers. You can go to the courses. We have them at ASCRS and AAO. And, but you have to get some experience, at least knowing how to cut a lens out, you know, in the early post-operative period, if you're going to put these trifocal lenses in. So can you talk to us a little bit about how you would pick 
refractive correction over exchange. So let's say it was just uncorrected refractive error in a myope, as you were mentioning earlier. How would you kind of work up that patient? Well, how would you do your calculations? Do you always opt for LASIK? I think you mentioned LRIs as well. Right. So I think this is great. So the first thing that if it's hyperopic error, I'm always exchanging. Okay. But that's my skill set. Some people like piggyback IOLs. There are no piggyback IOLs that I like because over time they'll be chafing. There was one in the past that was a round edge silicone or, and, and that we loved. And then LI61AO does go down to zero power and we do like that. But any acrylic IOL in the sulcus is really hard for me because I've seen the problems with it over time. Although some of my colleagues think that piggyback is a great strategy. So for hyperopia, you can do either piggyback or exchange. So that's your algorithm there. If you have a myopic outcome, uh, it's very easy to do a, put a contact lens on, show them what the vision would look like, make sure they like the lens. Once they say, I like this, um, then we can go ahead and do laser vision correction. Now, depending on their ocular surface, whether their cornea is thick enough, all those things, we might opt for PRK versus LASIK. What I've learned from Vance Thompson and John Berdahl is that doing LASIK will get them better faster, but you want to do it a little bit later, you know, eight weeks, 12 weeks. You don't want to do it in early postoperative period because it requires suction and we don't want anything to happen to that corneal incision. And like I said, I do open the capsule. Uh, prior to any laser vision correction. PRK, as long as you think their stem cells are good and they can heal nicely is also a very nice approach, but there is a remodeling period. And so they need to understand that their cornea is going to remodel over the next two months. They'll heal in a week and you'll remodel, you know, for a couple months. So that's for a different kind of patient. And then if it's just a matter of doing an LRI, like if it's less than a diopter and it's it's against the rule that I undercorrected, uh, then I'll take them, I have a short procedure room and I'll do an LRI for that patient. It's so funny to talk about PRK remodeling because I've done, I don't know, maybe 200 refractive procedures as a fellow and I've counseled that many patients over and over again. And then I got PRK at the end of my fellowship and every morning woke up checking my vision and saying, it's not clear. It's not yeah. crisp. Right. And I was like, wow, I counsel people about this every day. But then when you are experiencing that remodeling period, you really start to understand what that actually means. And I think it's something that I am definitely much, much more mindful about talking to people patients about because it's not like LASIK. It's not that next it's day. Not. It's not that it. next week. No, not at no. all. And everybody's ocular surface is different. And so some people heal from PRK and I'm like, why am I not PRKing everyone? You know, and then you have that one patient that takes a long time to heal or they get, you know, a pseudodendritic pattern and you're like, ah, it's HSV, you know? So it's, um, it's something that we really, when you're on the other side of medicine, and, and I've been on the other side of medicine recently for other reasons. And it's really changes uh, who you are, how you counsel and how you care for people. Absolutely. I even when I would get those 2 a.m. pages was so much more sympathetic 
right. after having had the PRK myself than well, I was prior. I remember my when I was building my practice, I went in for everything, everything. Someone had a sty. Someone was like, their eyelash was itching. I'm like, I'm coming. It's an emergency. And my husband would say, why are you going in for every patient? Like what they have a sty and they're calling you. And then he got one. And he was like, this is the worst thing that's happened to me, <laughs> you know? And so it's true. It's like, you don't know until it happens to you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Dr. Fram, thank you so much. Before we end the episode, I ask all of my guests, if you could have dinner with one person from any time or place in the history of humanity, who would it be? So I was asked this question on my fellowship interview with Ivan Schwab. And I'm going to give the same answer because I still, unfortunately, need to go to dinner to find this answer from this person. It's very, it it seems very kind of contrite, but it's really, really true. I would have dinner with Martin Luther King and I would ask him, how do you maintain hope in a hopeless situation? And how do you bring people together that don't trust each other? And given everything that's going on in the world, this is where I am. And this is the conversation I want to have with him because he's the only one that's been successful in the history of time. That's really a beautiful answer. And so extremely appropriate for what we're experiencing around us today. Well, Dr. Fram, thank you so much. This was an incredible episode. I certainly learned a lot. I know that our audience learned a lot. So thank you for joining us on this episode of The Pupil Pod. Thank you so much. You're amazing. I can't wait to get to know you better. And thank you to our audience. See you next time on The Pupil Pod.